0: Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit texmed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today.
1: Hi, everyone. I am Terry Diebler. I'm a practice management consultant for the Texas Medical Association. I'm passionate about sharing my 30-plus years of experience with physicians in Texas. And I'm here today with Dale and Kelly Cooper from U.S. Capital Wealth Advisors. They have some great information to share with you, and we greatly appreciate them taking the time to share this important information with our members. I'd like to first introduce you to Dale and Kelly. Hello, Dale and Kelly. How are you today?
2: It's fine. You're great. Thanks.
1: Good. Now, tell our members a little bit about yourself and what you do.
0: My name is Kelly Cooper. I'm a wealth manager and certified financial planner for U.S. Capital Wealth Advisors. Uh, we are a fee-based financial planning and investment group based in Austin, Texas, with six and a half billion dollars under management.
1: And Dale.
2: I'm Dale Cooper. Kelly and I work together. I'm a CPA. Been a CPA in in Austin for my entire career and. Uh, I've worked with physicians in almost every capacity, including everything from practice evaluations to consulting and physician formulas, practice buyouts, et cetera, via the CPA firm. And during that time, we also had a wealth management company that runs side by side, and uh, I have since retired out of the CPA firm and now solely uh, focused on the wealth management side.
1: Well, great. It sounds like combined, you all have a lot of information to share with our members. And again, we greatly appreciate that. So um, physicians who are finishing their many, many years of education and training right now are focused on paying down their debt and not necessarily on building their wealth. Tell us why it's important that they do both.
0: Well, that's a good question, because most people that most doctors that come out of, fresh out of med school have substantial amount of debt, or may have a substantial amount of debt. Probably the most important thing to do when starting out out of med school is to meet with a financial professional and with your spouse or your business partner, whoever that may be, and talk about the options for your debt. Uh, loan consolidation is an is important thing to look at if that's a possibility for you, and then developing a plan to start paying
2: down that debt.
1: Anything to add to that deal?
2: Well, I think the, you know, the, the main problem is, I think, that you know, coming out of med school and starting practice, you're, they're kind of caught between this temptation to up their lifestyle pretty drastically and pay down their debt. And in that process, with those two pulling at them, the savings capacity or that they want to save is kind of put on a lower tier. I think bringing that savings to the forefront early is very important.
1: Absolutely. So, Kelly, you talked about talking to a financial professional. So when you're seeking a professional, you know, financial professional, what should they look for in their financial advisor?
0: Well, when you're starting out looking for for someone to work with, it's great to shop around. It's great to ask questions to the advisor that you're meeting with. I'd probably say one of the most important things is to find somebody that you like and someone that uh, agrees with your values or has the same values as you do. And I may be a little biased to this, but I'm a certified financial planner and we are fiduciaries, meaning we put the client's interest ahead of our own. We make uh, investment decisions with your best interest in mind. The CFPs go through a lot of training and testing and licensing to attain those marks. And so we have generally quite a bit of knowledge in the various areas of finance. So when you're meeting with an advisor, make sure you ask questions. One thing that is, sometimes a little difficult with uh, various professions is everybody has their acronyms and the different things that they say. And make sure you ask questions about what those mean. One of the most common questions I get is, Kelly, what's a basis point? And we've had entire conversations. And at the end of it, I ask if they have any questions. They say, well, I'm not sure what a basis point is. And a quick aside, a basis point is 1% of 1%. So there's 100 basis points and 1%. And advisors, fee-based advisors like myself, charge on a charge a fee on assets under management, which charge generally 75 to 100 basis points.
1: And Dale, what can you add about what a person should be asking a financial professional?
2: Well, I think if I were coming in today, I would first, uh, I would have gone to their website and tried to learn a little bit about them. So maybe I understand their general credentials you got to find somebody you trust. It's one thing to earn interest and dividends, and it's another to get your principal back. So your look at trust is probably number one. So I think as you meet with the advisor, trying to establish that that trust and relationship is really important. By the way, there is a, a way for you to check on an advisor to see if there have been any complaints filed, and that might be something that you would want to do. That's
1: excellent advice. Yeah.
2: I think you know, that you, you know, you'd want to talk about the fee structure and then maybe uh, maybe ask, ask about other clients that they might have. Who are they currently working with? Am I an exception to what you're working with? Or you know, do you know something about this profession or not? And, and sometimes that comes into play and maybe it's not, but it also helps develop that relationship. I think also trying to figure out how they're going to report to you. What's the communication style back and forth? In the long run, that's gonna play a pretty, pretty heavy role. So I'd be okay. comfortable that that side was taken care of too.
1: Okay, great. So when someone comes to you for help with their finances, what are they usually looking for help with?
0: Well, you started off the question with, uh, started off the conversation with, uh, with talking about debt. And generally that's one of the main things that we start off talking about. After that, you know, many times when they come to us, there's some change in their life that has occurred that's driving the visit. Maybe, you know, you're purchasing a home, starting a, a family or uh, starting a business. Some people are worried about funding college plans for kids or maybe taking care of their parents, you know, so that the needs and questions vary with the client's age. Debt is always a conversation no matter how old you are. We We see that with the youngest doctors and some of our Retirees that are dealing with debt going into retirement, taking social security and how to lower that debt down and cut their expenses.
1: And where do you start?
0: Well, ideally you start saving and investing sooner than later. That's probably the number one piece of advice I can give is have the discussion and get to work. And wealth is almost never achieved with just a good or great salary. It's created by investing in assets that appreciate over time. For many, the starting place is a home and a 401k. That's where you start. You know, the, the effect of earnings compounded over you know, your entire working career, you know, is a pretty magical thing. Investing in assets that grow over time, that pay dividends, that's the way you make your wealth. That's how most people make their wealth. But uh just getting in the getting in the habit of saving and investing is important to start early.
1: So, Dill, it sounds to me like there has to be some level of discipline here, if you will, to not immediately, you know, think, oh, now I'm getting a paycheck and, you know, not worry about the debt, but start spending the money as we talked about earlier. Um, what advice would you give as far as a starting point that maybe is different from what Kelly's saying?
2: Well, I think maybe first to add on to what Kelly said, I think the the comment of, or the thought of now I'm making a, a Making a good salary doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you're rich. Rich, at least to me, means what are my assets minus my liabilities? That's the net worth. That's the classic definition of net worth. So, you know, just because a person makes a good salary, if they spend more than they make, they're not increasing that bottom line. So achieving that salary is maybe number one, but number two has got to be controlling those expenses. And I think in that first meeting, you know, we would be talking to them. Well, first of all, we'd be asking, you know, what's on your mind? What, why, why did you come here to start with? What's generally, if they, if they're seeking advice, they've got some burning question. Yeah. Uh, It is very rare, but the preference for someone to come in and say, man, I'm just starting out here. I've got a little extra money. What, What do I do with that? That doesn't happen that much, you know, unfortunately. <laughs> it's usually something, something else that's driving that. But in that first meeting, we'd be trying to get, you know, not only the salary, but get them to give us some estimate of their living expenses. What are their assets? And what are their liabilities? And debt's going to come into play there. And as we talk about debt, you know, the general rules would be always pay down the debt that's got the highest interest rates. First, credit cards. I guess the other one is don't use credit cards unless you have to. And if you you use credit cards, pay them off immediately, pay them off in the month where possible. But we're going to be starting to develop a balance sheet. You know, we're going to do that by asking them, what are your cash balances? Do you have any savings? Is there a 401k available where you're working? If they're married, does the spouse work and children? So we're going to try to start to get a basis for understanding their life. But all those facts of understanding the finances as they relate to the life or or kind of what we're trying to pull out.
1: Okay, so what about if we have a position in mid-career? He's not just out of training. So he has his 401k and he has purchased a home and now he wants to really do more investing, if you will. He's got a little more disposable income than the young position. Where do you go with him or her?
0: Well, there's many different places to go. You know, oftentimes we meet with, the doc- with doctors that have a love of real estate. I love real estate too. Real estate is a great investment. Um, it's a long-term investment. So being comfortable with having long-term investments is important when you start investing because not all investments are buying a stock, hanging, hanging out and enjoying the, the returns for a couple months and selling out. So when you're looking at investments, when you're, Coming to a finance professional in your midlife, maybe, and you have other cash holdings that you're, that you're looking to invest, it really comes down to risk tolerance. Risk tolerance, and, and everybody's risk tolerance is different. Uh,
1: what does that mean exactly, risk, risk tolerance?
0: So risk tolerance is the acceptance of various outcomes and having the right resources and controls in place to absorb or tolerate that risk. Greater risk taken in the market generally means greater returns. But if you look back to 2020 and, and 2022, if you're taking that great risk. You're also probably taking great losses. So having a acceptable risk tolerance is really important because, you know, you, have, you just have to be able to, to take those losses and continue to move on.
1: So will the risk tolerance vary by the age of the physician investor?
0: Absolutely. Everybody's different. Generally, younger people should be more risky. When, when you're younger, generally starting out, you're starting to make money. You have a long time until you retire. You know, we're looking at this as retirement age of 65. If you're 30 or 35 years old and you take a loss like in 2020 or 2022, you have 25, 30 years to make that money back. Right, right. If you're if you're 60 years old, and we, we have plenty of clients that are very aggressive in their 70s, 60s and 70s, and even 80s. And, you know, they like the aggressiveness, they like taking the risk, they like the returns and they can handle the, the losses and they're okay with that. So it's just getting comfortable with how much money you're willing to lose or gain.
2: One of the first things that another advisor told me and thinking about the risk tolerance, he said, when you get mad enough at me. Because of the losses that you want to throw a brick through my window, be sure and tape $100 onto it because that's the time you need to be investing. Yeah. Uh, and then he went on to say the job of an advisor is to keep you seated when you're trying to jump and, and run. If you've got the right t- risk tolerance set, we want to hang in there. And maybe Kelly kind of alluded to it, but it, I think in Kelly, he can correct the numbers. But in general, I think that if you think about 2000, the COVID year of 2020, we had a giant market drop right in the range of 35% roughly. So if you had invested 1000 bucks and you sold out at the bottom, you're going to take a 30, 34% loss. So you're going to get whatever, 660 bucks left. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you held on through the entire year, the market, the S&P was up 15% or 16% mm-hmm. of that range. Yeah, so you would have thousand dollars plus another 16 percent so now if you if you said wow i can handle that risk and my risk tolerance is, is okay so that person stayed in that time frame but if that person set their risk tolerance thought they were could handle those paper losses and decide they had to bail out that's where you get in trouble so it would have been better for that person to cut back and say, Well, I'm not quite as uh I'm not willing to take as much risk as I thought, and backed it off some and, and stayed more moderate so that they could stay through that time frame than being too aggressive on the front end.
1: And what other avenues are there? What other ways are they able to invest other than the stock market?
0: There is a huge supply of investments in the world. There's just to list them off, there's stocks. There's individual equities or stocks. There's fixed income, which is any type of debt or bonds. There's muni bonds, which are tax-free debt. There's private equity. There's private credit. There's all sorts of private companies that you can invest in. And that really goes to the effect of you know the risk tolerance. You were talking earlier about the uh, the doctor... middle of his career maybe making a fairly sizable paycheck if his risk tolerance is high enough using private equity and private credit type of investments can get you that return that aren't correlated to the market and correlation meaning that if the stock market goes down a a thousand points generally these don't move in that way the stock market doesn't have any effect on what the investments are are aside you know and going back to my, to my dad's story about COVID, COVID was a learning year you know our, our job during that year was that of a you know behavioral psychologist we we're talking people off the cliff telling people to hold on and that was a very true story uh, we we actually have one client that he called me and said after many many discussions said Kelly I just can't sleep at night we got to get out.
1: Wow. We got out wow
0: and I got back in several weeks later And we made 1% that year versus had you held on and ignored the balance of the account. Yeah, the fear and uh, making it, you know, at least on the S&P 500, making 18.9% that year. Not all of our clients are solely invested in the S&P. We have individual stocks and bonds and fixed income, private credit, private equity. So it's a mix. There's a diversification in there. And going along with that risk tolerance, diversification is really important.
1: Yeah, that was my kind of my next question. Do you advise your people to diversify their investments so they don't have all their eggs in one basket, so to speak?
0: Absolutely. I don't think you can find an advisor in the city, maybe even the country, that would advise against diversification. Not being diversified is a very big risk. If you say, okay, I love oil and gas, and I'm going to be 100% oil and gas, that, that'll work for a couple of years, depending on what year it is. But if you have a big slowdown like this year's current oil and gas, you know, you're, you're not making money. So it's good to have that, that diversification into some fixed income and some utilities and to different sectors inside the stock and bond market to make up that difference whenever your asset class that you're most excited about doesn't perform.
1: Yeah.
2: Terry, diversification, I guess in its simplest form, begins with a mix of stocks and bonds. That's been the traditional you know, allocation. Yeah. 60% to uh, stocks and 40% to bonds. And they kind of work to stabilize each other. When one's going up, the other one should be going down and vice versa. It mm-hmm. didn't work that way in 2022. So consequently, these other alternatives, they're called the general terms alternatives, meaning those those items that don't react the same as the market does became more and more popular. So all of a sudden you hear about that, you hear the word alternatives, and that could mean investments in in real estate, you can invest in real estate through the market. That's called a REIT. You can invest in private equity. You can invest in private credit, you know, too. So, and then those are the broad categories of diversification. And then if you think about diversification, even within the stock side, you've got large caps, mid caps, and small caps. And then you've got, you know, you've got tech and you've, well, you've got, at least in the S&P, you've got 500 choices there of different companies. They don't move in the same direction you know, if you listen to the news now, it's all about AI. And so anybody has, has AI in in yeah, their products yeah. is doing well or that's the hot topic right now. So right. Um, anyway, diversification is a very broad term, but it means not only in its broadest term between stocks, bonds, and alternatives, but down once you get in those categories, again, there's diversification in there too.
1: Let me ask you one other question. So there, many times, physician surgeons get the opportunity to invest in other healthcare facilities, whether that's, you know, a surgery center, you know, some sort of uh, ancillary in- income, if you will. Are, are you able to advise them about that investment, or is that something they need to go to their own personal CPA to work with them on?
0: Well, that's really common. We see that a lot. You know, that's more of my father's realm. Because okay. in terms of the investment side of things, you know, we do use a financial plan software, and inside that software, we build out their entire financial life, all of their assets, all of the liabilities. We can project that over long periods of time. But, you know, that's a private, call it a private equity investment, It's basically what that is, is investment in another, another doctor's office or surgery center. We can absolutely advise on what to do with it and, and what the you know, positives and negatives and potential outcomes are but it's not something that we can you know manipulate or move around generally we're talking about it and my dad has you know a great amount of experience in this area and i'll let him pitch in there
2: you know i think we can more than tell them advise them of you should or you shouldn't i think it is more of the right questions to ask and in many whether it's a physician with a surgery center or whatever they know much more about that process than we're ever going to know you know so You know, we're going to make sure, though, that they look at the financial statements. Their
1: due diligence. You help them do their due diligence. Right. It's just,
2: yeah, you're you're right. It's the due diligence side of it. But that is a little outside the scope of the typical investment advisor. That is more the due diligence side of it than what we do. And at the same time, it's not uncommon. And all clients have some of that. You know, many times it gets back to that risk reward is taking that your your funds and investment is it worth the risk there and in some cases they would say yes i work with those you know people forever i'm putting clients over there i know the other docs in there so they've got that information that we're never going to really really have so i think
1: on the other hand you have the information they don't they spent their the majority of their you know years training on clinical and how to treat patients and and medicine and know very little about the financial markets and so that's where they would come to you for advice for that
2: yeah you know sometimes i think the uh, physicians take a lot of advice from you know other physicians who have happened to made an investment in that you know in that's a certain, correct mm-hmm. you know and what's good for one is not necessarily good for the other you absolutely know. Sometimes it gets down to the why are you taking that amount of risk? Do you have to? Is it going to change your lifestyle if it's very successful or if it goes the other direction? Are you really willing to put that much capital at risk? So it's just trying to get them to think logically. I think the one thing that I have over my career, I believe even though the physician hadn't been trained in finance, they're very smart and they're logical. If I can point out, Here's the decision tree that you need to go through. They can make good and logical decisions. Of course, Fortunately, they don't know the, in many cases, they don't know the questions to ask or, or what the decision tree should look like.
1: Absolutely.
2: So I think it's presenting to them kind of how they should do the analysis with respect to outside investments.
1: Absolutely. So I think that about wraps up our time for today. Thank you so much for your time. But I'd like to ask each of you, if there's one piece of wisdom that you'd like to impart on our members, what would that be?
0: I'd say start early and seek advice from a financial professional. It doesn't hurt to sit down and go through the process and look at your income and expenses and start planning and do it early because we see enough people that
2: do it late. Dale. If I said, what is an action item that they can do? I would say, well, first of all, take the obvious, that they should be funding their 401k to the max, hopefully. So that would be the first piece of advice. But after that, I think, you know, if you get back to this temptation to increase lifestyle and pay off the debt, I think I would say set up a reoccurring amount, some amount, and either transfer that to your a savings account or Hopefully, it maybe even to the advisor that you've worked with and start that process. Make that become part of your regular reoccurring expenses as opposed to if I've got anything left, then I'll invest it. So I would say set up an automatic transfer and put some amount of money away and then reexamine that each year and hopefully up that.
1: So basically, you're paying yourself, but paying yourself for later. That's right. Okay, great. Well, I'd like to thank you both. The information was wonderful, and I'm sure our members will really appreciate it. So thank you again. And to our listeners, remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast so that you can get every episode. So until next time, stay well.